the monuments of our forefathers were literally destroyed with hammers. They built churches that were ugly because they were not being inspired by what came before. We don't know which bishops we can trust, but I feel like you can trust Bishop Strickland. There is a thing going on in the church right now about Eastern Orthodoxy. People are thinking, wow, Pope Francis is so crazy. Maybe we can escape to Eastern Orthodoxy as something that would be better for us. Is that what we should do? That's a confusing question for a lot of people. I've got someone with us who was there. He was in the Eastern Orthodox Church. He actually converted and became a Catholic only in the time of Pope Francis, and he's very glad he did. You're going to want to stay tuned to hear this episode of the John Henry Weston Show with none other than Timothy Flanders, who heads up 1 Peter 5. Stay tuned. Hey friends, this July, we at LifeSite are celebrating 25 years of service to life, faith, family, and freedom with a gala in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. So especially for those of you who couldn't join us in the United States, LifeSite is gathering our whole team and a few very special guests in the pro-life and pro-family movement for a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity at our newly announced 25th anniversary Canadian gala. LifeSite's star video reporter Jim Hale will be there with an on-stage special with the 16-year-old Canadian pro-family hero, Josh Alexander. Experience LifeSite's Faith and Reason show live with Father James Altman and Liz Yore. And you'll be able to interact with our reporters from all over the world, including U.S. Bureau Chief Doug Mainwaring, Canadian reporter Anthony Murdoch, and Rome correspondent Michael Haynes. You'll also hear keynotes from LifeSite co-founder Steve Jelsevac and myself. So RSVP for the 25th anniversary Canadian Gala now. And don't miss the opportunity to get a live, in-person, studio experience of LifeSite's top news show that broadcasts every Friday at 8 p.m., Faith and Reason. Seating is very limited, so RSVP and get your tickets today for LifeSite's 25th anniversary Canadian Gala in the beautiful Hilton Toronto Markham Hotel this July 18th. To buy tickets for the 25th Anniversary Canadian Gala, visit gala25can.lifesitenews.com. I look forward to seeing you there. God bless you. Timothy Flanders, welcome to the program. Thanks so much, John Henry. It's a pleasure and an honor to be with you. Praise God. Let's begin as we always do with the sign of the cross. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Everybody will know you as the... 1 Peter 5 guy, and uh, from your podcast, uh, you've got a book as well now. Tell us about that, but first give us a little bit of a history of Timothy Flanders. Who are you? I'm celebrating 10 years as a Catholic, actually, this year, uh, this month, in fact. Um, it was shortly after Pope Francis was elected that I came into communion with Rome. In fact, I've never been a Catholic except under Pope Francis. And uh, my first article actually at 1 Peter 5 was in 2019, and the title of the article was, I left Eastern Orthodoxy for the church under Pope Francis, and I don't regret it. And the reason I wrote that article is because I, I came from Eastern Orthodoxy. I was Eastern Orthodox for three years before that. Before that, I was a Protestant and various sects within that. But Eastern Orthodoxy really presents itself as the next best thing. And some Catholics are tempted to leave the bark of Peter, leave the Roman dogmas and 
find solace somewhere in one of the Greek schisms. And so uh, I was noticing that in 2019, after six years of uh, Papa Bergoglio and all of the crisis that have, has resulted. And so I wrote this article explaining a little bit about that. So that that gives gives a little bit of my own biography. But yeah, I was raised uh, Protestant. Uh, I had uh, very pious Protestant parents, but I, I just sort of went on a search for truth, as many Protestants do. Um, and uh, I landed, landed first, first with Eastern Orthodoxy and then with uh, Rome Sweet Home, as the Hans call it. If you wouldn't mind unpacking that for us a little bit, because that trend is still there. There are Catholics who have converted and left, I know personally, of some, and very good Catholics. These aren't, these aren't um, you know, wavering Catholics who are slightly, you know, on the edge of... No, 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 no. Very sincere Catholics. So if you wouldn't mind unpacking your reasoning for seeing, even under Pope Francis, the Catholic Church as being the true church versus orthodoxy, and that's where the hard argument is. I mean, to boil it all down, I, I have all my sources in this article, and we have a whole series of articles over at One Peter Five on this very question. Um, but essentially, even with Roman Catholicism in a state of crisis, it still surpasses Eastern Orthodoxy on a on a number of very significant points. Chiefly, of the chief of them being the ability to definitively resolve dogmatic controversy. This is, a, the in other, in other words, a universal magisterial authority. Now, the Eastern Orthodox churches used to have such an authority when they, in the first millennium, when they were in union with Rome, and they could call an ecumenical council. And that's how universal uh, controversies are resolved. But since breaking from Rome, the various Eastern Orthodox churches cannot resolve universal doctrinal controversy. And so they have not had an ecumenical council since 787. And so they have, they have, you know, we have controversies in the Roman Catholic Church, obviously, but I would hazard to say that 95% of the controversies today, they've already been definitively resolved by our own magisterium. There's just renegade heretical clerics out there pushing heresy. There is that 5% that there are theological questions out there that really haven't been resolved. The theologians are debating those and magisterium may rule on those in the future. But whereas with Eastern Orthodoxy, for example, like something that's very uh, acute for Catholics is the question of contraception. The, the, I documented in my article how the different Eastern Orthodox churches really waffled on that question in the 20th century. They actually started to allow that more and they don't really have a, a doctrinal authority to judge that. In, in reality, uh, what it comes down to is that in Eastern Orthodoxy, there are as many popes as, the, as there are priests, because every single priest that you go to in the Eastern Orthodox Church is your spiritual father. And there should be a spiritual fatherhood relationship with any Roman Catholic priest as well. But their spiritual fathers are so powerful that the faith, their faithful rely on them individually to resolve a question like contraception. Is contraception evil or not? My spiritual father told me this. But then if you go down the road to, uh, you go Greek Orthodox over here, and you go anti-Orthodox over here, you might get an entirely different question. You know, that, and that's a serious moral question. It's not some arcane thing. Ultimately, the Eastern Orthodox churches, they do not have the ability 
to resolve that. We have a problem in our own Roman Catholic Church, but all we need is a pope to do his job, and then the crisis will be over. Or a, an ecumenical council to do his job, or a, even a single bishop in his own diocese to do his job, and the crisis will be, start to be resolved. We have the ability to do that. Your history is fascinating because it exists totally in the time of Pope Francis, and you don't regret it. There's a lot of people who, um, those of us who lived before <laughs> that time as Catholics, for us it was a, a very rude awakening to to go from John Paul II and Benedict into, into Pope Francis. But there are converts, though. I know of converts, great converts to the faith, who also came in um, during this time. And I think that's really momentous. One of my big things was, hey, we can actually use this for the good because telling our evangelicals, especially for evangelicals who are really strong in the faith, we need you right now in this fight. It's a huge fight. And I know you've been thinking about becoming Catholic and it's crazy right now, but that's all the more reason we need you in here. What would you say to um, evangelicals like that who might be thinking about becoming Catholic but are intimidated or, or, or turned off by Pope Francis? I've been told that that is the question with uh, catechizing the converts. You know, do I have to po follow Pope Francis and everything? I mean, the, the, to me, the best thing that I usually would say here would be to look at the Holy Scripture and to, to take them through the various papal Petrine passages. Peter, I have prayed for you that thy faith may, may not fail. Jesus's prayers are always answered. So Peter's faith does not fail. And yet, in the, in the most famous passage, of course, you are Peter upon this rock, I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Just a few verses later, so Peter has gets two names. He says, you are Peter. So Simon is being named Peter the rock and uh, because he confesses Christ. But then uh, just a few verses later, he says, you are Satan. Get behind me, Satan. This is this dichotomy. And, and Cardinal Ratzker gives a commentary where he says, this is sort of a commentary on the entire history of the popes. And this is, I think, how I would present this to a, a Protestant is to say, one, as Catholics, we believe we truly believe in the power of the scripture and that these these dogmas are firmly embedded in the Holy Scripture. But there's also the scripture also gives us these paradoxes that are mysterious and uncomfortable. And yet with the eyes of faith, we can see that even though Peter is called Satan in his human capacity, when he acts as his own on his own power, he becomes Satan, not just on his own power. But when God acts through him and he acts according to as, as Jesus says to him, my heavenly father has revealed this to you. Then he is Peter upon this rock. I will build my church. And God is in control of the church and he rules it through Peter. But even when Peter becomes Satan, Jesus still rules through him. And so we see through this this history, the scripture, we can even go into Peter and Paul and their de their you know debate there. So I would use the scripture to to bring out that e this, even in the scripture, there are these sort of apparent contradictions, apparent mysteries, and that's the mystery what we're living right now is that we do have a pope, Pope Francis. He is the successor of Peter, and and yet that he is doing things in his own human capacity. And we, when we have faith, though, and we look at the whole history of the popes, and we see, well, the church has been through bad popes before, 
here's what happened this time. This is one of the things I, I go in in my book is various bad popes. So we don't need to lose our faith. We don't need to lose our faith and think that the Pope is the Antichrist, as the Protestant reformers did. Um, but we can look at the scripture and we can hold faith, have faith in the words of Jesus. City of God versus City of Man. Uh, what's that all about? City of God versus City of Man is an attempt to provide the faithful with a one volume survey history of the cosmic history of the church. And what I, when I say cosmic history, I'm talking about not only men, the history of men and the church, but also the history of the angels and the angelic powers, both good and bad, and their machinations using the work, greatest work of St. Augustine, which is City of God, through the lens of his greatest 20th century disciple, Christopher Dawson. And one of his great insights is to take this spiritual vision of history that St. Augustine gives us and to illustrate the power of religion as really religion is the pivot of history because we see that what really makes history flow is culture and what it really boils down to is it is the cultus the cultus is is the liturgy in every single culture known to man it has a liturgy and that liturgy is a visual and audible representation of divine mysteries and it is how we make contact with the divine. Now, obviously, there are every other liturgy besides the Roman Catholic liturgy is corrupted in some fashion. But even in pre-Christian societies, we have this same essence of culture, which is the liturgy. There's four elements of culture. There's the cultus, the liturgy. And then there's the tradition, which explains what that cultus is all about. All of the morals and the doctrines and everything, even all the way going into lesser matters like dance routines and cuisine. These things are brings us to the third element of culture, which is elders. The elders, their job is to explain the tradition to the next generation. And then the fourth element is piety, which is the hinge upon which the next generation receives that culture. So my book is a is a, a framework to understand the history of Christian culture, what I call it, I call it a spiritual history of culture. And it's, it's meant to provide this framework to show how important the liturgy is, because this is obviously one of the flashpoints of our Roman Catholic crisis now with the liturgy. And we can get into that. But also it is going back to your first comment about people leaving the faith. It's, giving them an apologia it's it's really indirectly it's it's a it's my own explanation as to why i'm not protestant and what not eastern orthodox it's 500 pages of explaining why that is uh but it's giving roman catholics their history their identity um solid foundation to stand on so that they don't have to they they don't have to fear what we're dealing with now because they can look at our forefathers and their zeal and what they dealt with which in some ways was worse, some ways better, but they we can learn from the example of our forefathers in all these different examples. So that that's the gist and the, and the purpose of my book. Let's look for a second at some of the pre-Christian liturgies, uh, as you might describe them. We're seeing a resurgence of some of that with, with Pachamama and kind of weird elements creeping actually into the mass, but nonetheless, they were there. 
at that time, explain if you can, if you, if you looked at that historically, what some of those were and how they related to the culture of the day. What we have today is what I assert in my book is that what we have is actually not a culture at all. It's actually an anti-culture. It's, it is completely inverted as to what a culture even is. Because even in these Roman, ancient pagan Roman or Greek Roman, even the Muslims or, you know, in Hinduism and all these different traditional cultures, they all have these four elements that I just mentioned. But since the advent of liberalism, we have an entirely new situation where it's really because even even the Protestants, even the Protestants had those four elements in their own civilizations. But with liberalism, with the American Revolution, the French Revolution, all these different liberal revolutions, what we have is first the cultus is removed from public society. And what is valued is a revolt against tradition and elders without piety. So it's a completely complete repudiation of the very essence of what a basic culture is. Uh, so even in the, in the pre-Christian societies, when our forefathers came to the worship of the mother goddess that they encountered in various societies, Pachamama included, they were they, what they did was they baptized that society because that society was pagan and it was corrupted by demons, but it still had these four elements of culture. And so what our forefathers did was they baptized that culture, which cleansed it of all its demonic content. In particular, they would destroy, they, what they would do is, for example, they would destroy a demonic altar. They would destroy that, but then they'd build a church on top. So they, they wouldn't actually destroy the fact that this is a holy site. This whole hill right here, you know, like a like a lady of Guadalupe, for example, they have, there's a holy hill that that culture reveres but there's a pagan idol on it. So we're going to destroy the pagan idol. We're going to keep the fact that that's a sacred hill, but we're going to put the blessed sacrament on it. And we're, that's going to be the throne, the new throne of God in this society. And we're going to cleanse that goddess worship because that is just a corruption of demons. And we're going to bring that to the veneration of our lady. So we're going to transform that from this pagan worship to venerating our lady, which is the, the proper veneration of the, the, the matron, the mother of God. But these new things are not even not, they're not trying to restore even a, even a pagan version of that. Uh, Dietrich von Hildebrand's he had, he observes that what we have now is not even, it's not even as good as paganism. It's a lot worse than paganism because even the pagans, had a sense of wonder. They had a sense of, of uh, veneration to the divine. And what we have now is, is just anti-culture. How do you see this figuring into the liturgy debate inside the Catholic Church? Because surely there is still, there are still elements of culture. And while the 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 outside culture is is definitely loving to bash all tradition. There are some elements of that in the church as well, particularly since Second Vatican Council, but I'd love to hear your take. The liturgy has always developed, the Roman liturgy and other liturgies as well. There's always been a development over time, but even the Second Vatican Council stipulated that the, the liturgy called for, the reform called for, should be an organic development, which is a metaphor which illustrates this cultural development. And in particular, we can note that what makes a an organic development is that it does not break 
this cultural transmission between the generations. So there is a small change that happens that the father passes down to the son and the son takes it up and passes it on to his son. And in, 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 in other words, it catches on. It's something that just organically and freely develops. So the, the proper way to do this, an example is when Pius XII introduced his, his new Psalter. What he did was he gave, an, he presented an option. He said, this is an optional Psalter, but it never caught on. What's a Psalter, just so that people know? So this is a, a new version of the Psalter that was translated directly from the Hebrew. This was promulgated as an option by Pius XII, and it never caught on. So it was optional, but nobody really was interested in and it. And a Psalter, for people who don't know, it's just a, it's basically, it's a prayer. Yeah, so it's all the Psalms. So it would be uh, your, a priest is required to pray all the Psalms in, in their divine office. So Pius XII said you could pray this version of the Psalms instead of the older version of the Latin Psalms. Um, so what we have in the imposition of the Novus Ordo is that Cardinal Rassiger said this is a breach in the history of the liturgy because instead of creating, for example, an option where this could organically develop, like, at, in the cathedral, we're going to have this new liturgy, and any can anyone can freely go to that liturgy, and perhaps some will will like that. Some some will have some uh, you know help in their faith, and they'll start attending this new liturgy. But others, it they won't like that, and they'll they'll keep to the old ways. And that this is organic development in a culture. Uh, but what we had was everything was swept away, and something new was imposed on the faithful. Not only that, but the monuments of our forefathers were literally destroyed with hammers. Rosaries were ripped out of little old ladies' hands. It, it, was, it was a moment where a generation isolated itself from all the prior generations. And they built churches that were ugly because they were not being inspired by what came before in an organic development passing down this, this cultural transmission. This was a, this entire thing was an, a movement of anti-culture because it was a breaking with the tradition before. And like I said, again, it, it was it would be one thing if 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 the Holy See were to promulgate an optional reformed liturgy, that would be one thing. And, and that and that could work for some some cases uh, that wouldn't that would not destroy this cultural transmission. Um, that's why one can say uh, there is a certain wisdom to Pope Benedict in Summorum Pontificum attempting to recreate a, a an organic cultural transmission with, with his solution, and we can debate whether or not that was the proper way to do it, but it seems that that was what he was trying to get at. Um, so those are some of the aspects of that. Hello, friends. To celebrate the momentous overturning of Roe v. Wade, we at LifeSite have minted just under 10,000 of these brand new limited edition pro-life silver rounds. Now, each round is stamped with the image of the Supreme Court of the United States featuring the date that the High Court delivered this historic victory. And on the front of our pure silver rounds, LifeSite's logo surrounded by a brilliant sunburst and draped with olive branches. They, of course, commemorate our 25-year anniversary of LifeSite News. We began in 1997 in September, so September of 2022 was 25 years. These one ounce silver rounds are available from our partners at stjosephspartners.com where you can fulfill all of your silver and gold needs in this perilous time. May God bless you. Tim was not using hyperbole when he was talking about 
destroying the altars and whatnot. For those of you who might be younger, if you go and look at what happened after the reform of the liturgy, so-called reform of the liturgy, um, and basically the ridding of the traditional Latin Mass, this is in the 60s still, maybe a little bit later into the 70s, but they were literally destroying all these beautiful historical, even, even I would say if we had the historical preservation societies, none of that would have happened, but because they were marble altars. And they were literally being wrecked with sledgehammers because um, it was hard to, to reform the, the, what was there in stone, literally in stone. Um, and statues were, were smashed and, and thrown into the sea. I mean, quite literally, this is what happened, um, which is why sometimes you can find old treasures of ancient statues um, it, you know, at the bottom of lakes and so on. Um, because this went on, it was a forceful rejection uh, of the past, uh, of of tradition, and uh, so your your point is very well made. That that actual break, uh, rather than some kind of organic growth, it was really evident. But I th- so many people actually don't know that history. This is the situation that we're in now: is that we're debating these things, but um, and we we think about uh, debating Archbishop Lefebvre and what he did was what he did was right or not. Um, various actions of the faithful, and we don't really know a lot of what was really going on in the 70s and 80s until we read about these horror stories that, are, I mean, we talk about liturgical abuses today, uh, which are bad, but back then they were quite horrendous. So we have this movement of the of the generation uh, rejecting and rebelling against what came before, but then we have the office really, I mean, if there's anyone to blame here, I think most of all, the the bishops will have to answer at Judgment Day because they're the elders. Their job in this in a cultural transmission is to watch over that transmission of the culture. But they had a a, a generation of of young clerics. Unfortunately, many priests were involved in this, but also lay people who were rebelling against their forefathers and destroying what came before. And the bishops just let it happen to a large degree. Unfortunately, um, part of this is because there was. The, the fad was that patriarchy and, and fatherhood, spiritual fatherhood, should not include discipline. We shouldn't discipline these clerics. We shouldn't issue an, an anathema. We shouldn't excommunicate these people. We should just dialogue with these wolves. Uh, but dialoguing with the wolves, unfortunately, has resulted in this destruction. It's very true that that's one of the underlying hallmarks of the destruction since the Second Vatican Council. And that spirit still exists. You can go and talk to some of the bishops who who still believe the faith, who are still Catholic by any sensible sense of the word. They have an appreciation for the Latin Mass still. They have a... um, you know they're still pro-life. They're they still believe in the teaching of the church on the whole, all the LGBT alphabet language issues, and yet they have that same kind of. Well, you know, we just we can't be condemning, and we have to. And those things are really deadly, particularly when you are dealing with wolves. They have brother bishops who are patently against faith, and and then what do you do? You're in a very strange, strange situation, particularly publicly, 
because you maybe think you don't want to condemn your brother bishops or whatever. But that's that's we're in. We're actually dealing with wolves that aren't hiding so much anymore. Christ says, the good, I am the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. And we need to have bishops who are fearless and they're willing to be hated for hated by the world for the sake of their sheep and attacked by the wolves for the sake of their sheep, destroyed by the wolves for the sake of their sheep. That's what we need. But in the absence of that, we have fathers like yourself who are standing up and doing what we can, doing what we can to defend the faith for our, for the sake of our children, because we that that's our job. Our job is to protect our children and protect our children's faith. And unfortunately, we do have many clerics and bishops who are undermining that faith, and the other bishops are doing nothing. So we have to do something. We just had a stunning thing happen not too long ago. Uh, a bishop whom we appreciate so much at LifeSite, Bishop Strickland, he uh, does a show at LifeSite once a week, um, and we're in partnership with uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, Terry Barber and his crew, and he hosts that beautiful show with Bishop Strickland. But Bishop Strickland did something amazing. He called out the Pope for going against the deposit of the faith. Same time, he put out a tweet condemning as schismatic the SSPX. And then within, I think, an hour or two, he corrected himself, noting that Bishop Schneider, um, his take on it, and, and retracting his take on the SSPX, saying they're not in schism. To me, that was stunning because it was something you never see or hardly ever see. It was a simplicity and humility that was truly touching. To me, truly remarkable. The fathers in the role of bishops were, for the most part, fishermen. Simple men who didn't pretend to take on errors of some kind of something else that they weren't. But they were totally faithful. And when they made mistakes they corrected themselves publicly. And that example was so stunning. Uh, I would love to hear your take on it. Yeah, like you said, there are many bishops, I think, out there who are Orthodox, who believe, you know, they were raised with, under John Paul II and Benedict, and they believe everything that the catechism, uh, at least the older version of the new catechism, he just showed us that he has even more than courage and orthodoxy. He also has humility. That, to me, I, you know, it's hard to it's hard to tell who you can trust nowadays. Unfortunately, we don't know which bishops we can trust. Uh, we don't know which priests we can trust sometimes, or or even lay people, lay commentators out there, myself included. You don't know if you can trust me, but I feel like. You can trust Bishop Strickland. I mean, even if I mean, even if you even if you are happen to be like a critic of the SSPX or something like that, and you disagree, whatever, you have to admit that it took a great act of humility to say, "Oh, I was wrong." That I I I I feel like we can trust. I mean, we already could trust him because we admired him. He, he was doing a good job. We were so thankful that we had a father figure, a a, a shepherd. Uh, who could shepherd us in Bishop Strickland. But now he just showed us an even greater example, a Christ-like example of emptying himself and uh, not caring about his reputation, but the truth, the truth about Val else. And St. Th Thomas says that humility is conformity with the truth. 
and he cares more about the truth than his own self. Something you so rarely see. And you just had him also do something else, a great favor to the whole wide world, in that we have very few prelates who are totally embracing the way of Christ and his truth, despite everything around us. And he points himself to Bishop Schneider, who has named Athanasius, not by his own choosing, for very good reason. There's no more apropos thing than that. He gets, in religion, you know, his born birth name or given name at birth or baptism was not Athanasius. He was named that in religion. And it is stunning uh, that that's his name. And here he is, almost literally one of the only bishops in the world, and pointed to by the sort of Athanasius of America, Bishop Strickland, uh, as, a, as a moral authority. And it was so beautiful. You know, you've got a beautiful image of Our Lady beside you there. What is that? Yeah, so this is the Russian Catholic icon of the Theotokos of Fatima. The Theotokos is the term most commonly used in Eastern Catholicism, means the, the, the birth giver of God. And the title of the icon is In the Unity, Through the Mother of God, Unity. And it is uh, is actually written by a Russian Orthodox Christian in collaboration with Father Burgos, in who's a who is a Russian Russian Rite Catholic priest in Saint Petersburg, Russia, and they are working to build a shrine to Our Lady of Fatima in Saint Peter, Petersburg, Russia. And so this is one of the projects that we are promoting. We've been working to get this icon available for purchase in the West. And so we will have that available very soon. So you can go to onepeter5.com, subscribe to our our mailing list to get the news on that. This is something that we promote, uh, first of all, for the intentions of Fatima, for all of the intentions, as as we know, about Our Lady of Fatima consecrating Russia and uh, against the errors of Russia on the first Saturdays and everything like that. But really, it is a unique image for obvious reasons, because it, it, in, in, a, in a unique way, it incarnates the whole message of Fatima because it is the Russian icon of Fatima. And so this is something we promote for the sake of Fatima, but also for the sake of our brethren in our, our Ukrainian Catholic brethren, as well as our Russian Catholic brethren at a time of this, this awful war. And so we, this is also an effort of peace, uh, peace, promoting peace against this this awful conflict that our brethren are facing, um, and promoting the gospel to uh, unite non-Catholics, especially the Russian Orthodox, with the Holy See. I think that's a, a special thing for you as a convert from Orthodoxy. That's um, it must be a unique perspective you have because the schism will one day come to an end in whichever way the Lord has that planned. And I, it sounds to me like it will sort of come with the conversion of Russia, which Our Lady promised would happen as well after the uh, consecration of Russia. What does that mean for you? It's, a, it's an interesting question for someone who was coming from Orthodoxy. I didn't actually even know about Fatima until later I became, after I became Catholic, but it, it's, it's quite amazing. Uh, because it really shows that in the same way that uh, after the split in the kingdom of Israel between the northern and the southern kingdoms, we know that the southern kingdom obviously was faithful to God, but God still sent prophets to the northern kingdom 
because God still loved the Northern Northern Kingdom. And what Fatima shows us is that God loves Russia, even at a time when Russia was descending into the, the greatest evil uh, perhaps the world has ever known in terms of totalitarian uh, evil spreading and persecuting the church. I read a Russian author whose name is uh, Vladimir Soloviev. He was a, a Russian Orthodox turned Catholic. Um, and he wrote a book called Russia and the Universal Church. And he was able to really, this is someone who died in, in the early 1900s, but he he helped to uh, create the, the modern Russian Byzantine Rite Catholic Church of today uh, through his influence. And so I, I've always had a great love for Russia. Um, and so, yes, it's, it's very significant. I, I definitely feel God's providential hand in this work here at One Peter Five, and I'm very thankful that I can be uh, one of the workers to help this icon get uh, promoted in the West. What would you say for Catholics today? You have a great work there at One Peter Five, and tell us as well where can people get a hold of you if they want to. You can email me at editor at onepeter5.com. I encourage everyone to join our our, our lay fidelity. We have two lay fidelities. One is a, about fasting. Uh, re recovering, uh, doing penances, and recovering traditional rules of fasting. And the other one is about Eucharistic reparation. And this is one of the aspects that we offer at 1 Peter 5 that is offered to the traditional movement. And it's an aspect of the Fatima message that is is not as emphasized, um, but it is actually something that it was a part of the Fatima message even before Our Lady showed up in 1916 with the angel of, of, of Portugal that taught the seers the reparation prayer and that prayer is part of the prayer that was composed by his excellency bishop schneider that is the prayer that we pray as a part of our lay sodality um which that that the one i'm talking about is uh, my god i believe i adore i trust and i love you i ask pardon for those who do not believe do not adore do not trust do not love you and what we hope to offer to the faithful is a spiritual means to channel all of the zeal and the anger that we feel against all the injustices perpetrated by bad clerics, the Eucharistic abuses, where we can do something about that and we can offer reparation to Almighty God. And in, in these United States, um, we, our bishops are trying to create a Eucharistic revival in the faith and the real presence. And we all want that as well as trads, uh, but we do believe strongly that there should be more sackcloth and ashes in that process. And we need to do that first. We need to make reparation to Almighty God for all of the wickedness that has been perpetrated against our, our the Eucharistic heart of Jesus in the Blessed Sacrament. So that is uh, that's something that we'll be promoting a lot next month in June for the Octave of Corpus Christi, the Sacred Heart and everything which also allows us to make reparation for all of the evil that is promoted during June and even gets infected into various liturgies out there, even Catholic liturgies, so-called. We hope that this is a positive thing that the we the faithful, we can we can put our hearts into this and we can truly make reparation to Almighty God and ask pardon for sinners and ask the conversion of sinners and evil men that their hearts may their hardened hearts may be softened by Our Lady of Fatima. Truly beautiful works. Go check that out. Our um, Saint Michael the Archangel to the three children before Our Lady appeared, taught them a host elevated in the air by itself. 
uh, and then went and knelt down. The angel went and knelt down with three little children, taught them that prayer. My God, I believe, I adore, I trust, and I love thee. I pray thee for those who do not believe, do not adore, do not trust, and do not love thee. Absolutely beautiful. Timothy Flanders, thank you so much for joining us and uh, sharing with us your incredible ministry, uh, your incredible apostle, I should say, and uh, look forward to uh, seeing that icon around. Thank you, John Henry. It's been a pleasure and a joy. God bless you and God bless all of you. And we'll see you next time. Hi, everyone. This is John Henry Weston. We hope you enjoyed this program. To see more like it, be sure to hit the subscribe button below to get all the latest content from LifeSite News. Check the links in the description to read more and connect with us on social media so that you can stay up to date with all the latest life, family, faith, and freedom news. Thanks for watching, and may God bless you.